I'm a part of the Bronx 120. That's that's the group that was indicted in 2016, the largest gang raid in New York City history. And we're bringing light to the injustices of what happened because on the news it was just all about the biggest raid, the 120 gang members, but they never really brought to the light the people that were doing, the good people that got caught in the raid um, that went down as collateral damage. And that's me and my story and I have a couple of friends that's just like that, too. Good afternoon, everyone. My name is Preet Bharara, and I'm the United States Attorney for the Southern District of New York. Uh, today, we announce uh, what is believed to be the largest gang takedown in New York City history. They put on the news 120 gang members. We have charged 120 defendants in two rival Bronx street gangs. 50, 60 people weren't gang members. They were actually like civilians. So on the news, it says 120 gang members. But you really just took the community. Right. That's what you should have put. We swept the uptown Bronx community. We swept. You didn't sweep 120 gang members because they weren't right. gang members. Right. So why are they in the feds? The charges include allegations of racketeering, narcotics, and firearms offenses. Multiple murders, attempted murders, shootings, stabbings, and beatings. The majority copped out to marijuana charges. Like, that is wrong. Like They shouldn't be in the federal penitentiary. Uh, nearly 700 NYPD officers and federal agents swept through the city to make arrests and to conduct court-authorized searches. And you're promoting that you're cleaning up the streets of gang members, but you're really not. So why did we bring these charges and take these actions today? Uh, the answer is very simple. You're just destroying our youth. The average ages were like 25. Like I mean, I got someone that just turned 18 and now he's in the feds. And you can't tell me what he did. Welcome to the Katie Helper Show. I speak to Craig Lewis, rapper, former MBA student, and one of the 120 Black and Latino young men rounded up and prosecuted under RICO conspiracy charges. So the Bronx 120 raid happened three years ago, but it's back in the news because a report on it just came out. The authors of the report, Babe Howell, a CUNY law professor, and Priscilla Bustamante, a doctoral student at the CUNY Graduate Center, found- I'll let Priscilla tell you. More than half of the Bronx 120 were not affirmatively alleged to be members of either rival gang. Uh, only 56 individuals, less than half of all the defendants, were alleged to be members of a gang or crew. 34 people were not members. Uh, 17 people were labeled as associates of or associated with a gang. The prosecution makes clear that defendants who are gang associates are not gang members, um, which brings the total of non-gang members to 51 people. Two-thirds were not convicted based on conduct that was alleged to be violent. For half of them, we're talking drug sales, and 35 of them were marijuana sales. A really disturbing aspect of this is how social media posts and texts were used. We obtained warrants for over 100 Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram accounts connected to the defendant's alleged criminal activity. Our Bronx Gang Squad investigators have been meticulous in identifying the main suspects, getting access to their conversations, and strategically buying their poison. These gang members do not belong on our streets. Instead, they belong exactly where they are going, to federal prison for many years, where they won't be surrounded by their buddies, 
They won't be close to their families, and they'll no longer be free to terrorize the neighborhoods in which they grew up. Craig Lewis pled to conspiracy to distribute narcotics, and in his case, it was weed. I also talked to Alex Vitale, professor of sociology at Brooklyn College and the author of the really great book, The End of Policing. Both Alex and Craig are part of a network of researchers and advocates working to end large gang conspiracy cases to chat with both of them. Stand by for the Patreon-only episode I'm releasing, which is a chat with The Intercept's criminal justice reporter Alice Sperry, who wrote about the Bronx 120, as well as the FBI's fictional black identity extremism movement. To do that, go to patreon.com slash the Katie Helper Show. Again, that's patreon.com slash the Katie Helper Show. So talk about what happened to you in 2016. Uh, you were, at this point, you, were in, you weren't even in the Bronx at no, this point. Um, I was in grad school at University of Bridgeport. I had one more semester to graduate. I was getting my MBA, my master's in business and administration. The day I, they raided my house, um, I was preparing for a statistics final. Like, um, all night, I actually had my son with me up there. He was on um, his little week break. And I was taking him to the classes with me. I have no babysitter. I had a girlfriend that was watching him at the time. How old was he at the time? He was he was six at the time. And um like they came in there and showed me the warrant. Like I was like, I couldn't believe it. I thought it was like a joke or something. And then I was actually cause I got my bachelor's in criminal justice and I knew the law. I really felt like, okay, I'm gonna beat this or I'm gonna get bail so I could come back and finish school get my master's or whatever but federal law it wasn't happening they labeled me a menace to society um at my arraignment they were saying that like I got shot and I was trying to shoot people and I'm Nikki Barnes but I never got shot before so that's just to show you like what I was dealing with like none of that like a majority of the things they said at my arraignment wasn't even true and they still just was attacking me and took away my bail mother crying it was really bad so i mean i went in there with my head high after like a couple months like i i lost my hope i mean was trying not to give up i turned to god and i reached out a few protesters and stuff reached out to me and through that we were able to create a documentary which we tell the whole story of what happened to me um, it's called Trouble Finds Trouble You. Trouble Finds You. You can find it on YouTube. You were yeah. in pre- you were in jail for yeah. how long? And can you talk about months, your experience two years. there? Um, it was it was it was uh like a time where I could get to know myself better, mm. who I really am. Like, how can I handle pressure? How can I overcome the worst situation ever? Can you can even imagine? Like, that's what I'm taking out of it. Right. Like at this point in my life, it was a rough time. But I was the last time I got to spend with my friends that I grew up with since I was like right. ten, nine, um, and I really loved them dudes, you know, like those is like really like my brothers. I mean, without blood, so right. I mean, I was there with the knowledge to to read the law, read the case law, um, read the stud, like study my law, help my friends with their cases. That the ones that were around me, um. Uh, we was, I mean, it was a gang thing that was going on because we black and we're together and we know each other. Now we're from New York, so it was rough going against other people in there, right. just trying to survive. Like, I mean, remember I was up in school, I had never been to jail. I mean, I learned, I learned a lot. I read 
more books than I did in school. Like all my downtime, I was reading books the whole night, like throughout the night. I try to sleep in the day and try to read in the oh, night. Wow. To I just I I adapted and I adapted quickly. You got you you got out of jail early. You only yeah. did twenty two months. Yeah, I did. Yeah. I did twenty. Did and then two the years. judge threw out the sentence. Yeah, he threw out the on um, five year plea, and that I knew like they would have to come with something else. They would have to come with another plea. I done studied all the the charges they could have possibly gave me. Once he came with the marijuana plea, even though I ain't sell all that, I didn't do it. I knew I did more time than I was supposed to. Mm -hmm. So anytime I get back in front of that judge, he gonna let me go home. Mm -hmm. Well, I was hoping. Yeah, I ain't know nothing. Right. Dealing with them, you don't know nothing. Right. So that's what happened. I went to cop out to my new plea, and he let me out on bail, and that's how I came home. But. What's the it? obstacle yeah. I face now is is ridiculous. Like, it's crazy. Me personally, grew up. I grew up. I went to Mount Saint Michael. I went. It's a Catholic. It's a Catholic school. school. It's like number. This top five in the Bronx. All boys school. Um, my summer schools. I went to public school, so I knew the difference. Mm. I knew the difference, and I had friends in public school. But my school was like Hogwarts. <laughs> Harry Potter reference. Yeah. Welcome to Hogwarts. Your triumphs will earn you points. Any rule breaking and you will lose points. I learned and I excelled. I was doing great, but I was I was still hanging out with my friends. I was able to go to school and I'm playing like I'm going to do this criminal justice thing because all my friends keep getting locked up. I was chasing the dream to become a lawyer. Um, I went for my MBA so I could learn the business, so I could build a law firm in Gun Hill to help my friends because all of them were in and out of jail. Right. It's a lot of them, over 50 of them, in and out of jail. I figured, okay, become a lawyer, I'll be able to represent all these people. I'll be a millionaire in right. no time. Right. So, Class action suits, um, right. And, like, me having that mentality, I would never, ever, ever go back and do construction minimum wage like I wouldn't have never I would have been anywhere interning for minimum wage to start I interned at a law firm mm. in 2013 I got a felony now and now I'm back you're a very good example of how the whole narrative around gang members is is so ridiculous and absurd and you really <laughs> shatter a lot of stereotypes it's not right. but just like not everyone has your experience, right? A lot of people weren't getting their MBAs and you shouldn't have to be getting your MBA to to be immune from this stuff. And you weren't immune because you actually no, went to wasn't. jail. But were, was your experience in jail different from people? Like you were able to, I guess the silver lining uh, is that you were able to kind of, because we had Tiffany Caban, another person who was uh, really great. She's running for Queens DA. And um, she's one of these people who's running for the DA who comes from the other side, like mm -hmm. a defense, a public defender, like Larry Krasner. And they're kind of infiltrating the system, right? And she talks about like trauma-based justice. I mean, it's like not something you usually hear about from a DA perspective. But um, one of the people called in and said how when he was in jail, he was able to kind of uh, be very introspective and learn a lot, kind of like mm -hmm. what you were saying. Yeah. And of course, you shouldn't have to go to jail to do that, right? Yeah. Like people should be able to do that through education or while they're yeah. while they're free, you know, yeah. not while they're behind bars. And it's most people don't do that, as we know. People who are released, they don't, you know, have these kind of eureka moments. Um, Education intensive, yeah, positive transformations. In my case, like, the 
the week I was going to jail, I had a Stop the Violence campaign. Um, my Stop the Violence event was the 29th, where I went around to elementary schools in Bridgeport, Connecticut, and told them, to like, yo, come to the college for this game. I got um, DJ Self from Love and Hip Hop and Hot 97 coming. Um, a dunk contest from my member. I was on the team, the basketball team. I was just make my players go crazy. I was coaching at the time. Um, I set up a tournament, dancers, like I was giving back. I got indicted on the 26th. My event was the 29th. So my girlfriend at the time had to run it. So that time I was in there, I just wasn't trying to lose who I really was. Like, so when I came out, I just got back to doing that. I just did it back in the Bronx. So mm -hmm. I took what I learned in college and just applied it in the neighborhood. My first big give back, well, I gave back a thousand bags with um, DJ Drewski from Hot 97 in ECG, East Chester Gardens, where the raid happened. So they never really seen nothing like that. Like the celebrities coming through to try to help them. Like, and I'm gonna just keep doing that like yearly, just blow it up, like just give back, like rain them with some enlightenment, you know, like uplift the hood, like. Right. You didn't complete your MBA because they, no, they got um, you right before you were, you had yeah, one semester left, you I said? I had one semester left and I got enrolled when I was in prison to Adams State University. Took me a year to get in, like correspondence work, doing the work on the yellow paper, and folding it up and wow, mailing yeah. it and they grading it and sending it back in two months. So I, I, when I, pre, when I um, first copped, I copped out the five years. So I set up my um, academic schedule to be completed by the time I'm coming home so right. I can still have my master's. I feel like me getting my master's in jail is something nobody could do. Like, how can you not respect that? Like, yeah. You have to respect that because everything that's going on in here is darn near possible, like, to get a degree. Like, if all this killing and, and all that going on. So, but I was getting to it. I was doing it. I was doing it. I was doing it. And my case flipped, like, you know, judged throughout my plea, and I came home. So it's really hard now. We have to start from halfway, like, my credits would be halfway, and I would have to probably do, like, nine classes. Yeah. So what are you doing now? I'm just entrepreneur work. I do shows, screenings. Um, I speak. Um, I'm a spokesman person. I'm a brand ambassador. Um, all of that music act everything like everything that i can legally right can you talk about the experiences of other people who i assume didn't have as, as kind of a philosophical attitude towards it and didn't necessarily yeah i mean there's people in there okay you throw somebody 23 years now he's just his hope is thrown away and now it's just straight gang time like doesn't care about nothing else like and then you don't got family helping him all he got is someone like me that's home and I'm doing the right thing that's trying to help him. And it's like, and his life is like basically over. He come back when he's 50, 60, yeah. no education. And it's a lot of them, you know, like not everybody had the education I had. Like, or even I knew I was coming home. They know they're not coming home. I mean, every day, like I'm home and I see the young kids and they like, yo, bro, I went to school because of you, bro. Wow. I only went to school because I seen you do it, bro. You took me up there with Cardi B, bro. Like, before all of this, Shiggy, bro. You know what I mean? And I'm like, bro, just keep pushing, bro. You see me still pushing, bro. Like, keep pushing because I'm going to get somewhere. Like, yeah. I'm going to get somewhere. And 
I mean, if you keep pushing, you won't get somewhere. Regardless, I'm going to take you out with me. Like, yeah. What's the Cardi B connection? Oh, my. She used to, like, host parties. And before, like, she wasn't rapping at the time. Right. But we was rapping. And she was dating one of, like, the guys. And we linked up. And, like, it was just a lit night. We videos, like, all of that. And that was before she was on the Billboard. I get locked up. See you on the Billboard magazine. Wow. I'm like, whoa. You know, like, yo. And that just showed me where we could go. No, is there? A, are you guys in touch? Nah, nah. Because she's pretty. She has good politics. I just want to remind y'all because it's been a little bit over three weeks. Okay, it's been a little bit over three weeks. Trump is now ordering, as in summoning, federal government workers to go back to work without getting paid. Now I don't want to hear y'all mother talking about oh, but Obama shut down the government for seventeen days. Yeah, bitch. For healthcare, so your grandma could check her blood pressure, and you bitches could go check your pussy in the gynecologist with no motherfucking problem. I know a lot of y'all don't care because y'all don't work for the government or y'all probably don't even have a job, but this shit is really serious, bro. This shit is crazy. Like our, our country is in a hellhole right now. Cardi B, if you're listening to this, you should get in on this case. Use so, your voice to highlight the wrongs. Uh, one twenty. Yeah. She know. Yeah. You know, she she involved with home stuff. And I pay my mama bills. I ain't got no time to chill. She used to be one of us. Yeah. Like YG. I'm a boss to a worker, bitch. I make bloody moves. Bloody moves. At this point, I asked Alex about his book, The End of Policing, which was published by Verso, and which, as you will hear, Craig had an interesting experience with. Worked out the deal for the book with Verso actually before Ferguson happened, before Eric Garner was killed here in New York. And at the time, I thought, well, this will be a little thing in the corner of people's minds who work on these issues every day. But of course, the the, the whole changing of the narrative, the mobilization of popular discontent, the, the rise of criminal justice reform has created a tremendous space for these ideas. And uh, what I've seen is a growing number of national and local organizations giving up on the idea that body cameras and implicit bias training are going to fix policing or that another training program is yeah. going to fix policing and that what we need is to invest in how to really make communities safer without putting people in cages. And that's the real solution that uh, that we're looking for. And I, I think you're going to see a lot of interesting developments over the next six months in terms of the national conversation about criminal justice right. reform. Yeah. And, um, you know, this like you can't make this up. But, uh, Craig, can you tell us about the experience that you had with this book? All right. So um, I think it was a Friday night. You know, we was about to go out. I was with um, two of my, my friends on um, Tink and Dottie is my rappers and we do our music thing. So we're going to, I think we was going to like a party or a show, wherever we was going. Um, NYPD just runs down on me, like um, quickly pulls me out the car quickly. Like all I see is sirens. And before I could even think he's already out the window, first question I ask is like, officer, what I did wrong? He like, yo, I'm going to tell you in a minute, get out the car. All right, I already know like what's going on. So I get out and I get to the back. The other officer starts searching the car, and now the guy's With talking no to me. permission, no nah, probable nothing, cause. Nothing. So is regular. that illegal? It is illegal. I mean, if I would have got in trouble and fight it in the state, 
right. from the start, you shouldn't have been right. there. So at the end, they would have threw it away. Right. And if, yeah. So but I know that. Right. Right. So you're getting searched. Yeah, we're getting um, searched without without cause. Well, this or is like okay. the tenth time in like two weeks. So I'm looking at him like, yo, um, like it's kind of like I'm not even gonna get too deep into right. it with him, like about, but I'm like, yo, it's messed up because right. you know I'm about to get back in the car and right. go about my way. So you gonna tell me why you pulled me over? He was like. I couldn't read your license plate. Uh, he was like, one of my lights on my license plate thing was off. I'm like, all right, but you pulled me over and read it. So yeah. what now? He didn't even run my license, nothing. So I'm looking at Tank, Tank looking at me, and I'm I'm just like, yo, I'm thinking, I'm just hoping Tank don't talk. Right, right. <laughs> don't talk. Like, uh, um, Dottie just looking, he's bigger than me. Dottie Six, is five, another person. He's a rapper, okay. yeah. 6'5", 240, right. 250, you know, just came home. And the cop is probably intimidated. Right. So I'm waiting for them to take this to another level. The officer comes out the car with the um, a copy with of, a cop of the, the end, end of policing. policing book. And he's looking at me and I'm looking at him. And he's just like, yo, uh, who like who are you? Like, wh what is this? And I'm like, oh, I'm an activist. Like, I got a degree, all that. And I'm tired of this happening to me. Like, that's why I'm reading this book. You should read it. He was like, oh, I'm going to look into it. And then he found my flyer to the documentary. He was like, nah, I'm going to look really into you. He was like, I'm going to see you again. I'm going to tell you. I read the book and I watched the um the documentary. So I already knew how powerful the book is. I yeah. ride with the book. Like, yeah. I ride with it now. Yeah. <laughs> I swore on everything I love. I, and, I mean, if Tank could call up, I know he listening. He could approve. Like, they let us go. Right. And by the time we were driving, Tank like, bro, like, I don't know how we got out of that one. I'm like, bro, you talking to the lawyer, bro. You know, like, if I didn't go away for two years, I would have had that certification. Right. Each chapter, by the way, has an alternative. So it's not just kind of a depressing look at why uh, the world is so terrible. It's that plus how we can make the world a better place. Um, so, yeah, it has... Um, Ten chapters. Or well, the first two kind of frame the, the his, problems right. with police reform, the history of policing, and then it takes eight areas of policing that don't need to be reformed. They need to be eliminated. Right, and yeah. And replaced with positive interventions. Yeah. Um, one of the most interesting things about this book is the look at the history of policing. And by the way, you know, not here, but in, in England, right, they call the police bobbies. Um, can you tell people why where that comes from? Yeah, they're named for Sir Robert Peel, Robert Bob the Bobbies, who uh, in, invented them in the 1820s. And everyone was like, oh, this is this amazing thing. How did he come up with it? But what gets left out of that is that prior to inventing the London Metropolitan Police, he was in charge of the English occupation of Ireland. And it's in that colonial model, colonial context, that he begins to come up with policing. And this is true of a lot, the development of a lot of police forces internationally. You, you talk about the found, like the history of, of the police, and it comes out of colonialism, right? It yeah. comes out of like uh, the Texas Rangers. The Texas here Rangers in the US. you talk about, and the Juan Crow system, also slavery. And we think usually of like rural slave patrols, right. but in the big cities like Charleston, Savannah, New Orleans, where they had these mobile slave populations right. working for wages, policing develops to manage that slave population. Right. And also with industrial stuff, with strikes. So it really is a method of social control. And yeah, its origins, I mean, it would have to change radically from what it was to even be close to what it pretends, pretends to be, right? Which is something to keep people safe. These horrible stories that are in your book, violent responses to, to, to strikes, minors, 
Yeah, my family were coal miners going back several generations, and so I learned some of this history growing oh, up, wow. but then was able to look into the details about how you know the suppression of workers' movements were at the core of forming many modern police departments. And what got you interested in this theme in the first place? What made you write about it? Yeah, it was not what I thought I was going to be doing uh, once upon a time. I was working at the San Francisco Coalition on Homelessness doing housing and economic development work, which is what I had studied. But this is when we saw the rise of broken windows policing, and little by little I got pulled into trying to, to deal with the, the repression of, po you know, the criminalization of poverty, right. basically. What is Preet Bharara saying now about this case, you know, this hero of the uh, so, resistance? Uh, so Craig and I and some others, we, we've, we confronted Preet at an event he did at the Brennan Center at NYU Law School. Uh, because they they've been the Brennan Center has been pushing this big you know let's end mass incarceration right. and so they're celebrating Preet as part of the resistance to Trump, but he oversaw a lot of these gang prosecutions. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So and he bragged about it, right? And he, he bragged about it on Bratton. television yeah. and stuff. So. Uh, we got them to discuss it at the event, and he was asked some tough questions, and basically his answer was, well, I trusted the police. Right. And I'm like, yeah, but if you're such a great leader of the resistance, isn't that because you're making independent calls, you're, you're finding out where the real principles are, and all the while he's promoting this new book called Doing, Doing Justice. Justice. Yeah. So we also uh, sent, a uh, uh, sent one of the moms up to an event in Scarsdale who spoke to him personally. Oh, nice. We gave wow. him a letter. We've asked the Brennan Center to host an event to talk about this issue. And we asked him in a letter for him to talk with us. Neither of them have taken us Come up on, on that Brennan offer. Come on, Center. You're supposed to be progressive, Brennan Center. Come we on. had a call with them. I had a call with them about a week and a half ago, but but no response since then. And what could be done right now? I mean, in a in a in an ideal world, let's say, like the what could be done about all these people who are still in jail? Or what could be done with Craig, right? Because Craig is now a felon. I mean, can can that be removed? Well, he wants to go first to law of all, Preet Bharara should should formally apologize, and okay. he should call for clemency. Yeah, I mean, Preet, these, call for clemency. These these charges should be dropped. These these records should be expunged, and these young people should be able to get on with their lives. But also, we need the city of New York and the NYPD to quit criminalizing these young people and to develop credible pathways into something positive for these young people. Where are the community centers? Where are the summer jobs? Where are the counselors in the schools? All of those things have been replaced by police. Right. So it's a question of there need to be these systemic shifts, right, away from, from police. Um, and also there need to be these individual cases need to be addressed. Both, That's right. On both levels. But yeah, imagine, again, like, I mean, I think listeners get this, but if, if in case you're talking to your conservative friends or family members, imagine if your kids had their text messages um, turned over to the police. Imagine how, how incriminating they would be. Babe Howell, who is the professor of law who did this study on the um, Bronx 120, talks about how it's it's taking away people's childhoods, right? Mm -hmm. You're not yep. letting kids be kids, teenagers be teenagers. They're turn it's also a divide and conquer thing. They're pitting people against each other. When they get out of jail, they can't hang out with each other. They can't follow each other on social media because they don't want to get in trouble. And they spent years tracking these young people. Right, right, yeah. We, doing yeah. nothing positive for them, watching them get deeper and deeper into trouble, some of them, and then hanging them out to dry. And I'm like, 
why weren't there positive interventions right. for years? If we know who these kids are who are at risk, why aren't we trying to do something positive for them? Instead, we're just trying to lead them into deeper and deeper problems. And what are some of the positive things that they could Well, we've been supporting the use of violence interrupters, which are these community-based efforts to work with young people to kind of break the cycle of violence to do culturally informed trauma counseling, the kind of stuff Tiffany Caban was talking about, uh, to look for social inclusion strategies. Yeah, these young people are coming together, try to create street families to find some meaning in their lives. Instead of criminalizing that, how can we work that into participatory budgeting, youth councils, work that into the community board structure? There, we can use that cohesiveness to produce something positive, to create basketball leagues, to create art programs. But right. yeah. there's uh, never yeah. any money for that. But there's always, you know, right. but there's $11 billion to build new jails. Right. Yeah. It's like the domestic version of, you know, no one's ever asked, how are you going to pay for that war? People are always asked, how are you going to pay for health care? It's a similar thing here. This is domestic version, right? It's no one's asked, how are you going to pay for this prison, that prison, this um, increasing the budget of this police department? But they are asked about how are you going to pay for this arts program, right? Speeding cameras. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. It's so interesting because you were saying how you were working on homelessness before. And it really is. You see how much police, the issue of policing, it, sh it shouldn't be related to all these things. But it becomes um, something that, you know, it's about mental health. It becomes something that's about um, it's an issue that is not just about uh, solving crimes. It's really about... Um, controlling people and it's in areas that has nothing to do, it shouldn't have anything to do with and also sex work and you know all these things are such failed experiments like how many times do we have to look at things to, to get that it's not working uh, you know there's the, the school to prison pipeline at this point in the interview we had to move rooms so you'll hear a change in the sound also around two thirds into the interview Craig has to leave but I continue my chat with Alex but before we do that here's a sample of Craig's song Against the Wall This is for my ones behind the wall I swear me and no man gonna ball Mama said I gotta stand tall If I don't stand for something I'ma fall I know that I gotta get my all Cause today ain't gonna promise tomorrow Haters wanna see me in the mall. So every day you know I'm praying to the Lord. April 26th, the feds came and it hurt. In the courtroom, see my mama go berserk. Never thought I'd see three flocker on a shirt. Death penalty, charged with murder in the first. Yeah, the, well, the rise of school policing is tied to the rise of high-stakes testing and kind of the zero-tolerance disciplinary systems that went along with that. You know, uh, high-stakes testing is ultimately driven by austerity, right. cutbacks in public support. Yeah. And so what they did was is that, you know, test scores went down as they cut all the extracurriculars, counselors, student teachers, you know. So then reformers in quotes, you know, these conservative reformers who want to privatize education ultimately, they say, well, the schools aren't achieving enough because they're not focused enough on the basics. So let's even further degrade the curriculum, make school really boring, make everything rote teaching for the test and memorizing stuff for the test. Kids are bored, frustrated, act mm -hmm. out. And then that acting out behavior 
is criminalized. And teachers are like, well, I can't run the classroom, so I want these kids out of here. Mm -hmm. So I want more school police, more zero-tolerance discipline. And in in Texas, where Bush created this economic, uh, teaching miracle, education miracle, you know, the test scores went up because they took 20% of the kids right. and put them either in jail or in these jail schools that were not part of the testing regime. So, yeah, the test scores look better because they X'd out 20% of the students. Right. Oh, so there's wow. this incentive for... I didn't know that. Yeah. Yeah, there's this incentive to... Um, to wow. If you get funded, right, based on how well your kids test, you want to kick out the kids who aren't testing well. Um, and, of course, standardized tests is such a random measure of intelligence it's not really it's not a, a predictor of, of future yeah. success yeah, or not, anything yeah. it's just and a there's metric very to... smart people who are bad at standardized testing there's yeah, people hard. who aren't that smart who are good at it yeah not to be well and the worst yeah. thing were the were the charter schools oh yeah who oh have with a, bernie bernie did come out against he did those. take a very strong position so the the charter schools have a double economic incentive because not only do they keep their programs afloat but they they got big, you know, six-digit, seven-digit salaries riding on the success of these models. And so here in New York, the Success Academy had got-to-go lists with names of students who were dragging down the test scores, who they were trying to figure out how to drive out of these charter schools. And they did it by saying, oh, you're not wearing the right color shoes and you, you put your shirt on the wrong way and, you you know, you stood up in class when you weren't. So then they're calling the parents every day, making them come for a conference, suspending the kids. As early as elementary school, mm. this is going on until, of course, either the parents take them out or they end up in the criminal justice system. So this is just an extension of this logic in its most extreme form. And what was the most surprising thing that you discovered while you were working on this book? Well, that actually was one of them because uh, a lot of the areas of the book, like homelessness, mental health, sex work, drugs, uh, gangs even, I had done a right. lot of work on, but I hadn't thought so deeply about school policing. It wasn't something that I experienced as a kid, even in public schools in Houston, uh, even though there was violence and stuff, this this turning it over to the police hadn't happened yet. Mm -hmm. And so that nexus between high-stakes testing and school policing was one of these aha moments mm. for me. Yeah. Um, and what about, um, Craig, what can you tell people about your experience in jail? You know, because I think, again, you are this poster child, and yeah. people think, oh, well, great, he's out of jail now. Yeah. Um, but you but went, there was violence. Yeah. What did, what did you experience yeah, there and observe um, there? I've seen people get stabbed. I've seen riots. I've seen police on inmate like beating yeah. on the inmates i've seen um inmates trying to beat on the police i've seen all types of degrading language i've i've experienced it like from the first day i walked in there like the pro probation not the probation the correctional officer the co like the guard he was like talking to me crazy like what um like i this is my first day in there and i got locked out myself because I didn't know 9 o'clock is going to lock. So I went to ask for help. It's like he didn't want to help me. He wanted to take me to the box. Which is uh, solitary. Uh, solitary confinement, yeah. And I'm like, like, why are you dealing with me like that? Like, we, So I, you were just, where were you when you said you were locked out? I was in the day room every year. Okay. Trying to get to myself. Right. But he locked it. And you like, didn't know because it was your first day. Yeah, I didn't know. Um, 
but when you get locked out, you either get a ticket or you're supposed to go to solitary confinement. So I started arguing with him, like, like Yo, you don't know me, like you don't, like I'm educated. You trying to act like, but that didn't matter because I'm an inmate now. So that type of thing that was wearing on me mentally. And then the fighting culture, because it's jail, like, you got to have testosterone. You got to be tough. So I had to get used to that, too. Seeing these certain things and not wanting it to happen to me put me in the position that I, I'm going to attack before I could be attacked. So I got on that, too. Um, it was crazy. I mean, my first bunkie was actually a lifer, like a life sentence, right. someone with life on transit. Like he was like a hitman. Like wow. and I'm sitting there like damn. He was Spanish, but he looked white, right? Whole body full of tattoos. So I'm coming in there with the cuffs on. They uncuff me at the gate, at the door, and they open the door and I look at the CEO like and he's black. I'm like, yo, you really about to put me in here? Like, because right. I'm thinking he's, he's a like, white, like Aryan brother. Yeah, like I'm coming from school. I don't know nothing. I'm just like, I, I don't have a choice. So they locked me in there and he turned out to be cool. Yeah. Yeah. He turned out to be like, like an older, like I got cool with him. <laughs> I met my mom. Did he give you any really? advice? Any helpful what? advice? No. <laughs> he didn't give me no, like, no. No. He only give me, like, tough advice. How to be tough. Well, that's what I mean. Advice to, like, get through. I mean, no. No. He was in his own gang. Uh, he can't give me advice. What gang was he in? Uh, was Latin, he? he was a Latin king. Oh, interesting. Or OG. Yeah. Like, like, old, like, 45. He can only give me advice in the street. But you've been in here and you about to do the rest of your time in here. So whatever. Right. You can only tell me how like a knife. Give me a knife. Oh, and first day he was smoking. Like Cigarettes or, or like, um no. I think it was more weed. it was weed. It was weed. Or and he was smoking K two. K two is what they smoke in there, so you can't detect it in your pee. Ah, uh, wait, K2 what's K2? Synthetic weed. Oh god, okay. Um that's the thing that have everybody going crazy out here. Like it's crazy in there. So, out here, no one smokes K2. Right. In there, everyone smokes K2. it's not K2, detectable. Right? It's not detectable, whatever. You could go, They, I'm sure they could have gave them something else. Like, And who's giving it to them? I don't know. Like, where it came from, the culture came from. I guess it could be the COs. You can't go right. outside. But, I've smoked that before. It, like, burns your brain. Like, Imagine doing 10 years, burning your brain 10 times a day, like burning it, like. Like it hurts you or like what? It, it's, it's, oh, that is a crazy thing. Like, I don't know if it's a drug or what is it? Cause I didn't know about it until I went to jail. Yeah, it's really problematic. And um, it's one of these things where if we just made marijuana legal, right, right. K2 would kind of go away. The only reason people take it is to avoid drug tests yeah. and stuff. But it, it it's and it's not really mar it's not synthetic marijuana it's just it's a drug that gets you high that's really cheap yo and so people take it as a kind of tool a drug of last resort but of course the other thing I'm hearing here is that this is a federal jail that is supposed to be at the center of the war on drugs and everyone has access to drugs what. Yo, any drug. <laughs> you really? Yeah. Not just K2, but more. No, I'm, I, 
anything. Like, I mean, it's costly. But right, but you can get your hands yeah, on you it. Yeah, you get your hands on it. Wow. But the K two thing, it's like all right, five years of that. Like, yeah, where your brain cells gonna be? And then you you got a felony, no education. I'm educated to know like, yo, nah, I'll do the cigarettes. Right. Like and I'm okay. Did you ever get um, sent to the box? Yes, I did. I did. Um, I did. Uh, cause I didn't follow direct orders. I didn't go where they wanted me to go. Cause I spent like two a uh, year in one house got a custom adapt this is like my house i live here now right they moved me and put me in a house with i don't know anybody here and it's it's a beef going on i don't know what's going on so why they move go, you i don't know okay i didn't that's how they do it they pick you up if i was in mdc if i was already in a prison they could just do that and send me to the other side of america right like, that's just how it works like, I don't know if they pick your hand out or they just want to shake you up. Right. But I didn't go into the house. Like, I told them, nah, I'm not. It's over. They took me to the box. I knew I was going to the box. But when I got out the box, I got to a house that, like, seven of my friends So they moved home. you? Yeah. After the box, they moved me again. So And how long out. were you in the in the box two in solitary? Weeks. You were in solitary for two weeks? Yeah, 14 days. What was that like? I read Game of Thrones. Oh, they let you have something Books. to read. That's it. Like, that's it. Um, did you lose track of time? I've heard mm, that happens, but yeah, I, I did. Um, you, I mean, I didn't really care what day it was. Right. Just know. Okay, it's milk and cereal. This is morning. The middle is not too hot. Get sandwich or some, but five is dinner, and then when the process repeats, a new day. Wow. How was dinner and lunch? Horrible. You mean season it? Nothing. It's like water beans. Like beans that's in water. Like thick water. Wow. <laughs> like no flavor. Nothing. Um, commissary. Make your own food. Make your make make your own twist on your food. Commissary could buy some seasoning. Wow. So whatever you get, garlic powder is going on there. Like anything. <laughs> yeah, I would choose get. that. My um, one. Uh, salt and pepper. Hot flakes ever? Hot what? Like the flakes, the uh, oh, like. Nah, no, we didn't even have a microwave, so we had no, the, like you know the pepper like on pizza. Oh flakes. yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, yeah. oh yes, yes, yes. They had, did they have that type? Of, yeah, but you ain't you ain't really see people dealing yeah. with that. Uh, um, and you can't have commissary in, in um solitary, can you? You have it, but not like crackers, um, toiletries, nothing to smile right. about. Yeah. Like, that's punishment. That's jail inside of jail. Right. I didn't know that they would let you read, honestly. I thought yeah, it would be. I'll tell you something about that. I'm reading with the light on. CO sees me reading with the light on. I'm in the box, like, turns my light off. The light's on the outside. I can't. So now, it's a little light coming through the little box of the door. I got to sit under the door to get the light because I can't sleep because I done slept all day. Forced me to read, and I like, yeah, that, it, it's crazy. Why they do that? Just to be assholes. Yeah. Yeah. It's okay. Yeah, this isn't radio, so you can curse. Yeah. Yeah. Um, assholes. Wow. He's black too. That's in, yeah. It It'd does be like that. Did Why? you? Were you surprised that it wasn't like? Did you before jail? Maybe you already knew this from the experiences you had in your friends, but before jail, did you think like having a black CO would be easier than having a white CO? Yeah. And I did. 
and then but what was your actual experience they're all black well i was at they were all black i, I didn't go up state in the right. state jail i'm sure it's bad up there too but we dealing with it with our own kind i used to hit them like yo i could be your kid like, yeah i'm like yo the way you treating me man to you don't even know who you're dealing with. Like, you're dealing with like, a good person. Like, your, your kid could do be here. Right. Just like I'm here. What would they say? Something? And he's like, nah, they wouldn't. Hi. Right. Did you meet people? Were they, was anyone, like, surprised when you said you were getting your Everybody. MBA? Did Everybody. it change how they treated you? Besides, huh. like, the cops in the car where we were talking about that. But I had, I had CO, uh, not every CO was horrible. Not every scene. I'm not going to sit here and act like it was horrible. Because once they found out who I was, they did try. But some of them was just like a trained like sergeant. Like, yeah. Brainwashed. Like, I don't like straight cop. Like, no heart. Right. And of course, it shouldn't like, you know, they should not treat people like crap if they don't have college degrees. Right. Yeah. But- it's not even like that. It doesn't matter. I'm in these grays, and they're in their uniform. Like, sometimes I'll sit in my sweatpants that I have on, and it's, like, a privilege to have regular clothes. Like, once you come out of there, you got a man that smuggled, whatever, $30, $40 million, and me and him are wearing the same clothes. Like, and you... Uh, you mean in jail? Yeah, in jail. Yeah. We can't... There's no different from you and me right. in here. None. You could be 50 years old. I don't have to respect you. Like, I'm in the same jail as you. Mm. I met people like you, Alex. Like, lawyers. Like, that got caught up. Lawyers. I'm talking millionaires. And they loved me. I met them in church. It would stop me and be like, yo. Because they can't connect to the real gang members. The gangsters. Like, the, the people, like, you know, that come out to jail. And they run into jail. Ain't nobody going to talk over there to them yeah i meet with them in church and then i leave that and go back with my guys and they see me and now it's like they'll come say hi to me and now they can say hi to everybody else right and they like yo you special like you're special and i used to go like i'll speak now i speak to the people in church tell my story like no holes but i'm telling them like I i don't know why this is happening to me but it has to be a reason like, because I haven't even killed anybody to right. be on the death penalty right now. It's like, I don't know what the purpose is. And everybody felt that. But you weren't, you were never, a, the death penalty was never. Nah, look, when I you. first got right. there, my first, the first day, April 26th, all of us were on capital punishment. Everybody. Because I got hit with the RICO. The RICO is murder, attempt. Conspiracy to commit murder. Oh everything. Like. Every crime, serious crime, is under the RICO statute. It's even it even goes to white collar crimes, it's, uh, uh, smuggling the money, uh, whatever, uh, money laundering, money laundering, mortgage fraud, anything like can fall under the RICO. It's a conspiracy. So, you got someone that committed a murder that's a part of the group. Right. So initially, right. we're all charged. Wow. You're. Yeah, one of the findings of Babe Howe's report was that for months. There was no individuation was of the charges. So everyone is just charged with conspiracy to distribute narcotics and conspiracy to commit murder. And there's no 
articulation of who did what, what the accusation. So everyone is facing the potential of life in prison, the death penalty, etc. Oh my et gosh! Like the way they did it was so like I was like, like the I was like, wow. Yeah, how did these you find people out? are like stronger than like they they giving you the impression that they are God, like they the are the, the button. Like you, how can I sit here and tell you, like I didn't shoot anyone rob anyone anything more time i went to school and i'm stopping the violence right now like you're not me because we're in here and people are still getting shot but i'm being charged with all of this and you wouldn't won't even like look at the case like you won't even look or take us take what we're saying serious like you xing out what we're saying so take all the good and you're listening to the prosecutor who's lying about all the bad, and then you're going with that and to apologize to me two years later. Yeah, what happened I, to the prosecutors? They are gone, all of them. <laughs> Rachel Maiman quit. I don't know what happened to her. The magistrate that got me the original bail quit. Preet Barrera's story. Right. His whole team is out of office. It's like now. And did they break the law though, or technically they didn't do any? Technically they didn't do anything wrong, right? Ethics, yeah, it's a yeah, it's a question of ethics. I mean, there's there's a there's a fundamental question here about the appropriateness of these RICO charges, which the charges rest on the claim that this is a criminal enterprise, and that that's why they need to charge everyone with these high level felonies. But in the end, you know, over half the young people aren't even accused of being in a gang, much less an enterprise. Almost every single one of the defendants was eligible for a government-paid public defender because they did not have two dimes to rub together. This is not a criminal enterprise. They should not be using these prosecutions to go after young people, mostly involved in marijuana and other very low-level youthful behavior. That could be dealt with in radically different ways. At a time where crime is at the lowest right, in history. Right, yeah. Why? But yeah, um, and one of the people who was you guys were connected to was someone who was already serving jail time for shooting someone, like it ricocheted. Um, Hit an old lady? Yeah. I don't know that and kid. He, he, no, oh, well, I, but uh, he's on the other side. Like he, yeah, he's a part of it too. But as if you guys had anything. I mean, that was he's already in jail and. That had nothing to do yeah. with my side of town anyway. Yeah. I don't even know why they even, like, that had nothing to do with none of us. Like, These things were just excuses. Yeah, that's all it to was. To give the right. police and prosecutors a blank check to wipe out a whole demographic of young people in these neighborhoods. And the mindset of the NYPD is, is that in their drive to keep pushing the violence numbers lower, that the way to do that is to focus on a kind of demographic segment of young people of color in and around mostly public housing developments. And they're like, well, we know this is where most of the remaining violence is. We can't use stop and frisk anymore. We can't use these trespass. So we're going to use these gang cases to just wipe out that whole cohort. And the, 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 occasional shooting murder whatever becomes just a pretext to right. give them the tools to just wipe out everybody pretext yeah, yeah. like i said 120 gang members i actually looked it up yesterday on pix 11 and i watched it and it was like 
and I'm really watching it like yo, the press this is conference what they were doing while I was being chained and brought and you making it seem like I was a part right. of some yeah. whole of a like yeah, when, right. and then when you look the at the worst it, of the worst, yeah. I really you're not gonna be terrorizing like, historic, your, yeah. historic, yeah. epic. They're and all patting great work. I with your, love it. Your buddies well, you and family horrible. anymore. Yeah. And like, they're all patting themselves on the yeah. back you about how great good. they are. And now that I'm free, like, what do you think exactly? But I could look all of them in their face and have a conversation. I'm educated. You can't come around here and act like I don't know what I'm talking about. I read the same books you read. You I, I walk across stages and I, I'm going to continue to do that. I mean, I, I feel like now. As a black man, I got way more to prove coming from where I come from. Is right. I gotta keep going back and looking at these people who's like it's like it's like set up like it's a system. Like we in you on probation that day that I got pulled over, if if my probation calls me and know that I was even driving with my friend, that's a, a possibility of violating my probation. What crime did I commit to go back to jail? I didn't commit one in the first place. Right. Then again, they could do it. And there's other ways that you could go through this. And it really messes up your mental mental health, like families. You got 120 people yeah, exactly. who have families. Yeah. Right. What do they think happens to the To the five, six, seven behind. people that's yeah. behind one person. Like, what happens to his sisters and brothers and kids? Right. Well, we, we work with some of the parents of some of the young people who've been caught up in these raids. And... You know, they're under tremendous pressure. And some of them who have bravely spoken out uh, have their their children have been punished for it, have been put in solitary, have been moved to other facilities. So not only are they dealing with the consequences of the arrest, but they're fearful about anything they say having consequences for their children. And one of the really caustic dynamics of this is that a lot of the prosecutions end up relying on different people in the case testifying against right. each other, which then creates a lot of tension in the community about whose kid is testifying right. about who else's kid. Now, in, in, in the Bronx 120, I think the families have been pretty good about keeping it together and not and 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 the, the actual young people. Have, have not gotten into big beefs over that. Mm-hmm. But in some cases, this has just generated new violence right. because everyone's angry about what happened as a result of the prosecution. It ain't, it ain't, it ain't even, it ain't the people that's going through it that came home. It'll be people that, like, sees what's happening, the outsiders, right. somebody trying to make a name for themselves. Oh. Like, that's what's going on. I'm there, like, my co-defendants, I got one that's in jail right now. I don't know what he did. He violated it. But outside of that, nobody gets in trouble. Mm. We trying to avoid the cops. They're on us. We not on the crime. Like, like you. there's a reason why we're home. The influences are gone. Like That's all it is. Like, an influence to be tough. And, I mean, Mad Dog is the leader. And they want to be Mad Dog. So, they might. he might have the power to tell them what to do. Like, I got the power to tell them what to do, but I'm telling them to do the right thing. And it don't get looked upon as heavenly, but I could get, I could be praised for giving a gun to a little kid and make him go shoot somebody. They'll praise me for that, and I'm not on that. Like, I never, like, nah, I, I'm past that whole thinking that was cool thing. I'm trying to be successful, and I want them to be successful, so. So what about, to play devil's advocate, and this is not something I think at all, but... 
What about someone who goes, oh, you see, it worked. You went to jail, and now you're not thinking that way anymore. And I went to college. It's a deterrent. Okay, that's it. So you're, that so deterred that's what, yeah. Not, right. I'm not. She's a, a great kid. example of like, uh, I, <laughs> I left. The, I left. I got my experience, my college experience of living on my own. And I seen how you're supposed to move. I wasn't living in New York City, the crazy New York City. I was actually living in one of the richest states, Connecticut, and where the night ends at what ten? Yeah. The roads are quiet at eleven. That's normal. <laughs> like, yeah, I went this, to college. Oh, it ain't normal. <laughs> I'm telling you, New York City. This is like this is a this is a jungle up here. Like they don't sleep. I mean, everybody's sleeping habits are off. Everybody's running around up there, bed, 11, you wake up for work at 7, and you hit the highway. Traffic is ain't even as bad. Like, right. But um, I got my education, came back home in the summers and started to see, like, Mount St. Michael. Like, I was woken from ninth grade. Like, right. I already knew, all right, what you want to be? Lawyer to help right. my friends who go in and out of right. jail. It's different. Like, I didn't need to go to jail for that. Like I said, stop the violence is what I was doing, trying to, like, make an a, a impact for the kids. The same thing that I'm doing now is just I have more, mm-hmm. not more, more reason, more passion. Like, just, like, it means more to me now. Like, I like it meant a lot before. It just means more now. I'm on the same, the right. same time, just better. Get but better it, right. with wine, like wine, fine wine, better with time. And they gave me time. So. Right. Although some programs do this, right? But obviously just having you, people like leave that community mm-hmm. is not a, a broad-based policy solution, right? Because it's like he's the exception. Yeah, I mean, you've got so many failures built on top of one another. You know, we've got the highest level of residential segregation that we've ever had historically. Uh, so we have entrenched geographically isolated racial segregation with degraded institutions, you know, schools that uh, don't have the resources to deal with what is a high-needs population. We got uh, mass homelessness. One in ten school kids in New York is homeless, and a a heavy concentration of that is in exactly these same communities. Uh, you, you've got a degraded child welfare system, you know, a huge predictor of involvement in the criminal justice system is involvement in welfare, in, uh, in child protective services, foster care, etc. You know, everything is working against these young people. The, the very few community facilities that they just don't see a future for themselves that, that is positive. You know, they don't see a pathway forward. And so we've got to take a holistic approach to this. Yeah. And where are you going now? And I want um, to, if you have time, I'm, I have a question about your son, but you probably, I can um, ask you that later. But I'm going to a high uh, school uh-huh. where I'm doing a program where I'm teaching the kids on, like, what can happen to you through the gang culture. Like, um, I'm screening my film, Trouble Finds You. I'm going to talk about that segment, how we can help the kids over nice. there in Harlem. So they paying you an honorarium? I hope yeah, they do. I mean, that's what I'm going to talk about now. Oh, good. That's, that's what I'm. That's really make what the I'm deal. Going to talk yeah, about. make yeah, yeah. Gotta make they the gotta, deal. They gotta. They gotta. This yeah. this is needed. Yeah. And ain't no ain't just anybody could go up in front of them yeah. and really give them this material. Yeah. The way I could give it. to They them. would do that, I'm sure, with another guest who wasn't. 
like that well, was and also how many uh, school resource officers are there in that school oh, yeah. and how could they you know someone like Craig could you know really transform a school no, working with young people yeah of course right and you know that would be just why don't we have people like Craig who are working in these schools who can really speak to these young people from a position of mutual understanding and respect to try to transform the learning environment into something positive for these young people, but instead, constant criminalization, surveillance, monitoring, degrading treatment, etc. Yeah. And then they're going to look at me like, probably, I mean, I about my education, I went so hard for education because I didn't want to change who I was. Like, I just wanted to be myself, and I wanted them to respect me for who I am. I thought, like, the higher I get in my education, I could still like do my grades, you know, yeah. dress how I dress. Right. Like, and I wish, like, it was different, like, because right now I feel like that's not, like, how it is. Like, it doesn't matter. Education, you can still get wrapped up or you can st- when you get pulled over out, out there for an hour and a half, you get belligerent. Now you're in the bookings, you know. So do you ever consider cutting your hair, for instance? You nah. just mentioned your braids because you think that would be just what, like... I, I I feel like... I'll give you another example. Yeah. I'm going to get sentenced. He changed my, my, my plea. He threw out the plea. I didn't have to cut my hair for that. You know? Like, so why would I cut my hair? Because to y'all, it's, it's or to my peers and my friends... Me cutting my hair is going to be looking better to the judge and might help right. the judge look at me like it would... I walked in there, me. Right. No, I'm, I brought that up because you said the thing about how yeah, your nah, braids, um, yeah. you're, you're, I mean, what I took like you to mean outlook. is that your education doesn't protect you from being profiled. No, it doesn't. It's really a shame. Like, until I start talking to somebody. Right. Because once I start talking, then they be like, whoa. Every time, it never fails. Like, once I leave the Bronx, I go somewhere. At first, until I get to start talking with them, now we click. Yeah. So it just feels like you'd be selling out or... Um, i selling myself like, short uh, for somebody else. Right, yeah. And I'm not doing that. Like, yeah. Just like the... like, I'm all for making money. But what I learned in school and the degrees that I chased in my lane that I... The industry that I wanted to be in, like, to force me into construction is, like, oppressing me. Yeah. Like, for real. Like, if you're telling me the easiest way and the only way I could do to make a good living is to go break my back, and I got all this knowledge. Yeah. Um, I kept my hair. I'm just keep getting smarter. You what? I kept my hair. I kept it. Yeah. No, I, I just, I mean, you when you brought that up, I was just thinking about how, like, it's interesting in some ways that, um, you know, like, it is not this it's it is kind of resistance right like you're not letting you're not yeah. conforming to because i'm sure you got pressured from did you get your lawyers pressure you and stuff no, my lawyer my lawyer nah he ain't oh. pressured me to cut my hair or nothing i've been pressured before to cut my hair but i never i'm not because i'm an entrepreneur like mm-hmm. i mean and you you have a brand yeah like i mean come on i'm doing all of this like all of this I'm carrying everything. Right. You can't tell me, like, cutting my hair is going to get me to another place and my education is not, then it's not worth but it. But do you me. think it would? I'm just, nah, I mean, I don't. you don't think it makes I don't. a difference. No. I'm just curious. I'm not advocating for that. I don't. I'm just curious I'm black. if it's. I, right. I'm, I, no. 
No, it doesn't. And then I have a scar. So it's like. Right. Your dad. So in that documentary, yeah. your dad talks about how you have this triple birth. What? You're black. You're black. male. You're right. from. He's got a felony. I got a felony. And now on top of it, yeah. you have a felony. Scar, right? scar black, yeah. felony. Number one, you got a scar on your face. And then number two, now you got a felony. So you got two strikes against you. And you got the third strike, you're black. So your walk is heavy. What's the scar <laughs> from? When I was younger, I was fighting with somebody and I got snuck by somebody else and I got cut. Like, like that's young. I was young. How old? 17. Yeah. Everybody think it happened in jail or something. Right. It's like, no, it's outside. And did that change the way yeah, you definitely. were perceived, you think? Um, no. No. I don't think it changed how I was perceived. It just changed my mental. Like, because people knew me where I was where I was from. And then I already started school. They knew I was good. Like, I was special. I, I was basketball. Yeah. Doing everything. Oh, I got a cut in my face. I look good. That's jealousy. Was it scary? Um, when it happened? It, it wasn't scary. It was just. It's because it's near your Shocking. eye. For listeners, I just can I. Yeah. I, I thought I got punched. Under your eye yeah. and then to your lip. Um, yeah. It's on like a diagonal, and then they just you got stitches right away. Or? Yeah, I, I, when I got back to my oh house, my, my face was open. Oh I my went god! To the hospital. Wow. Yeah, uh-huh. been through a lot. Yeah, and your son, how is he? He's good. He, I mean, New York. He's going to school. He's like, he's everything to me. You know, that's my son. I wanted to see my dad. It was hard to think, cause I called him. Every day I would pray, I hope my dad gets out of jail. And one day I actually came true. I just, I can't see him do no wrong in my eyes. Like, I mean, I, I, this is my son. I miss him. You know, I love my kid. Like, I don't want to be biased. But I, I, I really see exactly what you're saying now. Like, when I go to my son's school and it's nothing but black and Spanish kids. And they're all like... Like, I go to the parent-teacher conferences, and we all got similar traits and similar things going on. And I'm just like, yo, why is it like this? Like, why is it like this? I go travel to Manhattan, and I come back here, and it's like, like, it looks crazy to me. Like, I'm telling you, everybody. Like, the difference? Everybody. I go to the Bronx Zoo, and it's 100 black and Spanish people, and I'm like, all right, so 120 man raid, 120 kids. I'm like, yo, this is crazy to me. Like, like it just psychological thing to me. I'm just looking at it like, wow. It's the new Jim Crow. Yeah. Crazy to me. Like, I can go to the zoo. Go to the zoo and I'm looking at the snakes and I'm like, damn, they gave you a life sentence. <laughs> like, You're becoming, you should become an animal rights activist. <laughs> Yeah. Oh man, but I mean, everything I went through, it amounted to this. This is great. I know bigger things is coming for man. me. Like, um, um, thank God that I took the education serious. Because if I didn't, I don't know what I'd be doing right man. now. Um, gotta run. Okay. Well, thank school. you, thank you so much, Craig. I'll be back. Um, yeah, come back definitely. Is there a value in, like, obviously? my orientation your orientation it's not about punishment right i do have um you know vindictive fantasies about 
not even vindictive, but like, does punishing police have any accountability um, value? Does it does it change? Does it act as a deterrent at all? So this is this is like the the tough tough question right. to come to grips with here. So there needs to be accountability. Uh, there are police who've caused tremendous harm as individuals. They they obviously should not be police officers. Right. Uh, but my view is that a lot of the police officers who are well-intentioned and trying hard to do the right thing should also not be police officers. Right. Because we should not be using police right. to do yeah. all these things. And the other part is there's no reason really to believe that throwing a few police in prison, firing a few police is going to change the impact of policing on poor people and poor people of color in particular. And of course the right, because they're still right? going to be waging the war on drugs right. and a war on crime and a war on terror and a war on immigrants and a war yeah. on gangs and all this stuff. And so even a totally lawful, unbiased, properly executed drug arrest is still fundamentally unjust. It's going to ruin some young person's life right. for no damn good reason. And it just does not matter what the accountability mechanisms are that are in place. It's irrelevant. Instead, why are we criminalizing drugs in this yeah. way? That's a political problem. It's a question of political accountability. And the final problem with all of this is that it rests on a philosophy of deterrence that says if we just punish enough cops severely enough, they'll change their behavior. Well, we've put literally millions of people in prison for drugs, and it has done nothing to change anyone's behavior. This idea that we can use punishments and threats to change human behavior, even if it works... It does so at a huge human cost, and we basically sell our souls to the devil right. when we go down this line of reasoning. And so it's the toughest sell I have as I crisscross the country talking about these ideas with community groups, with folks who've, who've suffered terrible losses at the hands of the police. Yes, we want accountability, but don't assume or imagine that that's going to change policing in any meaningful way because right. it just isn't. I mean, yes, I obviously see what you're saying when you zoom out. And I don't think, I mean, I hate, there's this race to the bottomism where like, you know, like a white kid does something and he doesn't get sentenced. And then people are like, I want him to be sentenced. It's like, that's really, it's the op. We should call be them advocating. all terrorists. Yeah, we should, right. Exactly. Right. When that's like falling into the trap and we should be advocating for the people who are over overly punished to not be as opposed to the other way around although i get the, the temptation of seeing it that way is there not a difference between systemic i mean maybe this is the i'm it's begging for scraps but systemic kind of like the war on drugs being terrible systemic racist classes but it's it's hard to tell a family isn't it that well, just one person being not killed by cops if accountability does work let's say for argument's sake right can't we do both things at the same time? Right. Well, I think I, I'm not against, you know, having Pantaleo yeah, I was just gonna ask you suffer about that. consequences right. for killing Eric Garner. But what about the lieutenant who texted back, no big deal? What oh. about the chief who ordered the, the operation in the first place? 
What about a whole culture of politics in right. New York City that says the way we make neighborhoods better is to throw the black and brown people in them in prison or constantly harass them, stop and frisk them, threaten them? Where's the accountability right. there? And the thing is, accountability at that level might actually make yeah, a difference right. in improving the lives of people in these communities. And too often, too often, some local politician, some city council member comes out on the picket line with us when someone gets killed saying, yeah, we need accountability for that officer. And then they go back to the city council and vote for more police, vote right. to cut mental health services, right. you know, vote to cut, you know, vote to oppose safe injection facilities. These are the things that would actually make these communities safer, stronger healthier, more resilient, but instead they want to keep giving us more police. And what about with prosecutors for, let's say, misconduct? There is actually a, a, a massive increase in attention to the role of prosecutors right. in driving mass incarceration. The Justice Collaborative, the, the work of John Pfaff at, at Fordham Law School has really sh helped shape public awareness of this. But the solution right. to these, this is, is also political, the, yeah. but it's, but the solution is political. And to their credit, what a lot of these folks are doing is they're focusing on the electoral process, especially for elected DAs in the counties right. across the country who are the main drivers of this. I mean, the feds are important, but we have the power to vote these people out of office and it's starting to happen. And it's, it's very exciting. And yeah. yes, I think there are limits to what we can achieve through that, and, and maybe we should view it as a kind of harm reduction strategy. Right, yeah. But I think where there are candidates, like there are in Queens, like there were in Philadelphia when Krasner got elected, who have a really transformative vision, I think we, we should embrace that. We should put some resources into that with the understanding that that's just one part of a broader political accountability strategy. Right. And that the other part of it has to be the, making the demands for the basic resources that communities should have to be able to manage their own affairs, to be free of crime and disorder. And it's like one of the best things that a DA can do is decarcerate, refrain from prosecuting. That's right. Refrain, refraining from taking action. Yeah. I mean, DAs also have financial resources. And one of the interesting things about the Queen's DA race is that there's over $100 million in asset forfeiture money sitting in that office. And similarly, in Manhattan, there's hundreds of millions of dollars in bank settlements. So they have actual positive resources that they could be spending on transformative initiatives right. in the communities, creating community-based mental health structures, culturally appropriate trauma services for young people to try to break the cycle of violence. So some candidates are talking about using that money in this transformative way, while others still think about, well, we'll do, you know, drug education in the schools right. or Fair give or it, you know, and give it to parole. This is cop think yeah. and not part of the solution. Right. It's part of the problem. Another interesting thing that you mentioned in your book, which I really do recommend, and the history section is fascinating, but you mentioned in the book um, how being armed is actually, for cops, can create more higher fatality levels, right? Yeah, it's complicated. It's it's uh, uh, so, of course, the, yeah, yeah. You know, the, Brit the British police mostly are not armed yeah. and rarely get killed. 
Now, of course, the handguns are not widely available in right. the UK, right. so it's so a compounding, say, yeah. complicating thing. But when an unarmed police officer is confronted by an armed suspect, the armed suspect has no incentive to kill them. Right. They can just get away. Right, right. So lives are saved, both the life of law enforcement officers and the lives of suspects. Obviously, it's not an ideal situation. You know, we would love to see less encounters sure. that, that look like this, but we should not assume that just because Americans have guns that therefore police need to right. have a lot of guns as the solution. And of course, the bigger thing is how many jobs that armed police do today in the United States could be done by other people yeah. who don't carry weapons. And I think that's really the main way to think about disarming policing is let's get all those armed police out of our schools. Right. Let's quit sending armed police to manage homelessness, mental health problems, sex work, drugs. They don't play a positive role in those dynamics. The guns just poison the interactions and we'd all be a lot better off without them. And do any countries have models that you think are good? A lot of places have bits and pieces. So New Zealand has legalized sex work. So it's not a concern of the police anymore. Right. There are regulations, and some people want decriminalization, which would be just to treat it like any other business. But, of course, any business is subject to tax law and health and safety regulations, right. you know, so something like that. You mean here they want decriminalization? Yeah, right. you know, the decrim New York. Right. In New Zealand, they have full legalization and limited regulation. In Germany, there are places with legalization and very heavy punitive regulation, right. which keeps the black market alive right. on the side. Yeah. So that's not ideal. That's true also in parts of Mexico, in Nevada, here in the United States. On drugs, we can look uh, to Portugal, which has decriminalized right. all drugs, basically got police out of the drug business, focus on the public health issues. The health outcomes have been very positive as a result of this. Uh, crime and disorder and drug usage have not gone up. Civilization right. did not collapse. Yeah. And there's no reason why we couldn't do the same thing here. Look at different regimes of legalization. Uh, there have been places where heroin was legal with a prescription. You just went to the doctor, right. got a prescription. You don't have to steal money to pay for drugs. There's no black market activity no overdoses, people go back to work, the outcomes are very positive. I, I recommend the book Chasing the Screen I've had on, on, yeah. the, on this, uh, on on this background. Yeah. And there are places that are trying to figure out how to quit criminalizing poverty to the yeah. same extent, that are looking at housing first models, trying to rebuild uh, mental health infrastructures. You know, in the UK, in theory... <laughs> If someone is having a mental health crisis and a family member needs help, they call the National Health Service right. emergency number. The police have nothing to do with it. Right. And they have 24-hour capability to respond to crises. And they don't have as many crises because people get regular health care because the they place. have right. national health insurance. Right. Yeah. So, yeah, lots of countries have pieces and lots of places do. And we just need to kind of pull that together into a kind of framework that I think we could think of as a real robust kind of social democratic framework. Yeah. And what's the ultimate goal if you're, because you are an abolitionist, right? 
I think abolition is really important framework for understanding the ways in which most reforms merely legitimate fundamentally unjust systems, putting people in cages, using police to manage social problems. That's not to say that there could never be anything that looks like a police officer. There could never be the need to, like, separate someone in some way. Yes, but abolition drives us to do the hard work of thinking always first about how do we build people up, how do we make communities stronger, and how do we understand punitive interventions as the tool of last resort always. Right. So the ultimate vision is to have self-sustainable communities that are able to regulate their affairs in through informal social controls, which is how wealthy resource neighborhoods do manage their affairs. Police are not an active part of the lives of people. They already have abolition. Yeah. You know, right. if you go to a fancy private school on the Upper East Side and you home. get caught with drugs, they do not call the police. Right. They're like, Katie, yeah. why did you do that? They don't even call your parents right. most of the yeah. time. They're like, give me the drugs. Right. Now go back to class. I don't want to see this ever yeah. again. Right. You no have endless dollars. chances. Right. And so we're going to and if there really is a problem, we're going to get the parents involved. We're going to get therapist, a clinic involved, yeah, yeah. a therapist. Right. We're going to solve the right. problem. Yeah. Well, why can't every community have that? Yeah. That's great. Yeah. Well, thank you so. Oh, Pantaleo, what's happening with that? And the, what was that text you referred to? I didn't even know about this. The text message from. Oh yes. So during the uh, incident, one of the officers texted the uh, lieutenant on duty at the precinct, saying, "It looks like we might have a death in this stakeout, you know, operation we've been running." And the lieutenant was like, "Well, it was a legitimate arrest, so it's no big deal." Wow. Yeah. So where's the accountability for that person, right. right? Well, of course, there won't be any accountability. And if you it, to fire that guy, you'd have to fire every police officer because that's the whole yeah. mindset of the institution. The case is, is moving forward. Uh, there's you know been evidence that it was a chokehold and evidence that it wasn't a chokehold. Right. To me, that's somewhat irrelevant. He was obviously medically compromised. Right. Eric Garner was the person who died, but there were tens of thousands of interactions like this right. that were equally unjust, demeaning, degrading, and should be stopped. And so, you know, yes, there should be some consequences for the officers who not only killed him, but did nothing yeah, about laid. the fact that he might be dying. Or dead, you know, the casual disregard yeah, for his well-being. Yeah. yeah. Uh, so, yeah, there should be consequences. But until we get rid of broken windows policing, until we deal with what was driving that kind of disregard for people's well-being, the consequences for communities of color are going to remain unchanged. Yeah. I know you have you just looked at the different candidates. For 2020. 2020, there are different positions. So tell us where the different candidates stand on um, criminal justice issues. Well, a lot of my uh, comments are based on this new uh, book slash report from the Brennan Center 
where they got statements about criminal justice reform from from most of the Democratic candidates, from from the Trump White House, from also uh, the conservative Koch brother prison reform movement. And I think for the Brennan Center, they're trying to make the the point that there is now, you know, a bipartisan drive for some some serious reform that the First Step Act is not the the end of the conversation, that there needs to be more. So the First Step Act was the the first attempt at some kind of bipartisan federal level prison reform, uh, you know, so approved by Republicans and Democrats in Congress and signed by Trump. And it did uh, reduce some sentencings. It did allow for a handful of people to get out retroactively, uh, but it's very thin. And even it was, you know, very controversial. McConnell didn't want to let it come up for a vote, et cetera. Uh, the turtle. Yeah. But the, like but the, as we know, the problems both at the, are both much deeper at the federal level and the vast majority of people in prison are there on state charges. Uh, so there, there have to be changes at the at the state level. Now, ha- part of how we got into this mess was the 94 crime bill signed mm-hmm. by Clinton that incentivized states to build prisons, hire more police, uh, increase sentencing lengths, etc. So none of the candidates are talking explicitly enough about that misstep. Interestingly, the, the Republicans some talk about mm-hmm. the 94 crime right, bill because they can blame it on the Democrats. Right. Um a lot of people are talking about bail reform. A lot of talk, the people are talking about, you know, changes to parole. There is no federal parole anymore, so they want to bring that back. Um, I was struck by a couple of things. One is that uh, Sherrod Brown, he took in a uh, position that the most important element of criminal justice reform is wage reform, putting people to work mm. at a living wage. And I think that's a really important way of thinking about Senator this. Senator from Ohio. Rather than yeah. just tinkering with a few sentences and dialing back marijuana charges, if we can really put people to work, that's going to reduce the drives that get people into trouble. I also thought, uh, interestingly, that, that uh, Beto O'Rourke's uh, position was the most detailed and had a really lot of good elements called for ending the drug war across the board, focused on marijuana stuff, but it was in the drug war. Uh, Good stuff about sentencing reform, but also just rethinking our reliance on the criminal justice system to solve problems. And uh, it was a very solid statement that I Mm. think people should look at. The most disappointing to me was actually Bernie's. Mm. Now, Bernie, Bernie has, of course, a long record of calling out the criminalization of poverty, mass incarceration, etc. But his statement for this pretty important volume was limited to a critique of private for-profit mm-hmm. prisons, which I think is really misguided. This is a tiny piece right. of the puzzle. It, it does not get to the real underlying drivers of mass incarceration and it's the kind of thing I would expect someone who doesn't really want to engage this issue mm. to, to, to embrace. Uh, so I was really disappointed by that. You know, Cory Booker talked about, you know, taking the First Step Act a little bit further. Two-step act. Yeah, exactly. So, you know, he's great on marijuana legalization, right. but kind of thin on the rest of it. Um, 
And so and Warren, uh, Warren had some good kind of technical fixes right. for a handful of things, but I didn't see a real strong vision yeah. there. She's very econ based. Yeah, I mean, she's great on that stuff. But yeah, to me, one of the most exciting things that's in the work nationally is a, a big coalition of civil rights groups is working on a counter to the '94 crime bill, which is taking each of the provisions of the 94 crime bill that that drove mass criminalization and mass incarceration and trying to flip it on its head. So instead of a massive subsidizing of school police, let's have a massive subsidizing of school counselors, restorative justice programs, bring back, you know, extracurricular sports activities so that we rejuvenate this as a learning environment, not as a criminal justice environment. And Sherrod Brown, is, is you, you mentioned him at the beginning, even though he's not running, but he, for whatever reason... He had a really good position on this. So this was all the Dems that they asked, the, not just people running. It wasn't just people running. They had Van Jones oh, okay. was in there, uh, the head of Color for Change, uh, NAACP. Yes, yeah. uh, NAACP, Eiffel at uh, LDF. And... Uh, Interestingly, you know, some of the advocates also had very thin positions. Huh. Interesting. And I don't know if it's because they're trying to create this kind of low and lowest common denominator consensus, which is, of course, how we got the First Step Act. Right. But I was really disappointed that, that the kinds of folks who got chosen for this, you know, felt like a lot of tinkering for the most part. You know, Van Jones had some good stuff. He His whole thing is cut the prison population right. in half. But to do that requires a massive rethinking of the way we use policing, the way we produce public safety in communities. And what I did not see in that document was a real thinking about how that would be done. But I know in the civil rights community, there is a lot of talk going on about that. There are a lot of policy position papers and frameworks that I've seen drafts of in the last year that are all moving in that direction and away from the idea that body cameras and sentencing reform are going to save us. Right. So if you were advising Bernie, what would you tell him to do? I think he's got to embrace this idea of rethinking what public safety is that public safety is having strong communities, building up individuals, moving away from criminal, trying to criminalize our way out of all of our social problems. And the thing is, I know that he agrees yeah. with all that. Yeah, I don't think it's. I mean, but he's not artic He's not articulating. Yeah, I don't it. think it's the lowest common denominator. I think maybe he's just like hasn't gotten it together enough yet. Well, I I can't theory, figure but... out who's advising him yeah, on criminal justice policy, and I've tried to ask around. Yeah. And we, we know the kind of people advising him on economic policy and every, right. and other things. And, you know, one of the big electoral challenges for him is, I think, you know, reaching out to African-American voters, especially older African-American yeah. voters. He's made Not huge inroads yeah. with young ones. And my own students included are uh, even, you know, two years ago, uh, my students were very sympathetic to Bernie, unlike their parents. Right. But I think he does need to take a better position. I think he can, yeah. consistent with his overall framework, but I just haven't seen it articulated. Hmm, yeah. So give me a call. Yeah, Bernie or Bree. Bree's his press secretary. She's been on the show. Um, and what about the incarceration enfranchisement discussion that, um, again, we had, I guess it was asked by the CNN during their marathon uh, debate, you know, like town halls with different Dems. Uh, 
they asked about the whether people in, in jail should have the right to vote. And they, of course, did that Dukakis move where they choose like an extreme example, like the Boston bomb marathon bomber. Um, can you can you talk about that? So, I mean, it's great that people are having this conversation. It's great that Bernie and some others have made a clear statement in favor of extending the franchise. But this is not a core issue. I don't think it's a symbolic issue. Um, the population that's in prisons and jails is going to be a very low voter participation population, frankly. And uh, while I'm all in favor of this, this is not criminal justice reform, and this is not going to get us out of mass incarceration. Um, restoring rights to folks with past felonies is more important. It's a much larger population. So, you know, we see that happening in Florida and other places. So that, I think, could really change the dynamics of elections in a place like Florida, which is why they're trying to dial it back, right. the Republican legislature. Um, but I want more talk about how we can take problems away from the police and actually solve them in positive ways. Right. To me, that's the real litmus test. And what about, um, really quickly, the Florida um, uh, initiative where they included, so it was giving the vote to felons, ex-felons, but excluding murderers and sex offenders? You know, this was the compromise that got worked out, and it, it was controversial within the advocacy yeah. community, and, uh, you know, some people even voted against it because it wasn't as inclusive. You know, I, it's not my job to sit here and, and microanalyze sure. the, the decision-making among good people of good faith trying to make something really important yeah. happen. It's disappointing but I see the incredible political pressure that they were under to try to cobble together a majority, which they did. Right. You know, so you especially don't want to second guess people who achieved an amazing, yeah. important victory. And maybe as other states take on this issue, we can make more progress yeah. and, and try to frame things in an even better way. Yeah. So it doesn't carve out people who... Because I guess it was somewhat historic because it was the first state constitution null amendment that excluded some people. It's interesting because I asked Alice Esperi about this. She brought it up, actually, and your responses are very different. I kind of tend more towards yours where I was like... She wasn't having it. No. <laughs> and she thought the organizers weren't politically, like, weren't looking at power enough. Anyway, it's interesting. We could have a debate. Um, well, thank you. This is great. Oh, it's my pleasure. Yeah. Speaking of Alice Sperry, don't forget to become Patreon members so you can hear my related but also very different conversation with Alice Sperry, criminal justice reporter at The Intercept. Go to patreon.com slash the Katie Halper Show. Again, that's patreon.com slash the Katie Halper Show. Please follow Craig on Instagram and Twitter at BBOFlock. That's B as in boy, B as in boy, O flock, F L O C K. Follow Alex on Twitter at A Vitali. Keep up with the work that they're doing at policingandjustice.org. As always, you can rate and review The Katie Halper Show on iTunes. And The Katie Halper Show theme song is by the band Cordova. The show is edited by Ted Reedy. <laughs> <laughs>